Good Heavenly Father, as we've been learning how to pray, the fact that we can come before you and address you as a loving Father who cares so deeply for us, who provides for our every need. Again, we are so blessed. Now, Lord, we desire to be strengthened and encouraged and built up in the faith as we open our Bibles and as we hear the word of God. Father, I pray that through your spirit that um, you would remove myself from the equation and that it would be as if Jesus Christ himself were present physically in this church and were speaking to each one of us. May it not be my thoughts, Father, may it be your thoughts. And Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do. Bring conviction where there needs to be conviction. Bring edification, encouragement where there needs to be encouragement. And either way, Father, we pray that we would become better disciples, better followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we may fall in love with him in an ever-deepening way. And all God's people said, amen. Take a seat if you would. Get your Bibles out with you. There's a reason why we call this church Bible Chapel. Even though I didn't name it Bible Chapel, still. There should, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in uh, the pew in front of you or behind you. Or you may, as some of you have iPads or phones. And see the children go to children's shirts. Goodbye, kids. They're like, yes. No more listening to that pastor and his annoying voice, right? Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, as we take our, or rather continue our journey on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. You all ready to go? You good? Let's dive right in. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I'd like to begin this morning by talking about what I call keeping up with the Joneses. In an article entitled, The Truth About Keeping Up with the Joneses, uh, Brittany Klein wrote this. We've all heard the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. Of course, it's a phrase, I didn't know this, it was made famous by a 1913 comic strip called Keeping Up with the Joneses. It was created by Pop Moman, and it just, this comic strip showcased a family that is desperately aiming to keep up with their neighbors, who happen to be, of course, the Jones family. Uh, the author was just really initially poking fun at people's desire to impress others. We all want to look impressive, right? Now, this comic strip lasted 26 years, and after it ended, the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, took on a whole new meaning. Of course, it used to be what, when you think of the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, what did it mean? Okay, who has the most upgraded house, or, or, or the bigger home, or the most upgraded kitchen, or whose kids have the best grades, Right? Keeping up with the Joneses. So it typically referred to your neighbors next door or across the street. But here's the deal now. With the rise of the internet, it has since taken on a new meaning with social media far expanding the circle of reach with whom to keep up. In today's modern world, this approach of keeping up with the Joneses has reached a whole new toxic level. Uh, social media sites such as Facebook or Instagram, they allowed seemingly ordinary people to create a false facade 
around their regular existence. We are privy to people's almost daily movements of friends who share photos, right, that document their seemingly exciting vacations or the latest luxury purchase or their busy social lives. You know, a lot of you guys are on Facebook and Instagram and so on. You see someone and they're on vacation or whatever is going on in your life, and it kind of creates this feeling, doesn't it, within you? Like, I don't have that. wonder what that would be like. So, again, it makes you wonder, she writes, what's wrong with your life as it sets into a motion a series of thoughts and feelings that mirror inadequacy. You ever felt that before, watching somebody, their posts on Facebook or wherever? Social media has designed a culture of competition, and guess what? To acquire more. A recent survey of just over 1,000 respondents conducted by a Harris poll on behalf of the American Institute of uh, CPAs revealed that Americans experience feelings of envy when they see friends show off their lifestyle on social media. Roughly about just over 40% of the respondents admitted that seeing other people's purchases and vacations, it heightened their own desire to consider similar purchases and vacations. You ever feel that? In a different article, a study out of the United Kingdom confirms what many of us have already learned, though, and that is that money only makes you happy see, if you have more than those around you. According to the London Telegraph, uh, despite in Britain, the vast improvements in general standards of living in the past 40 years across Britain, again, keeping up with the Joneses, that phrase is obviously, it's almost worldwide, is still our biggest aspiration. He writes, researchers have found that owning a fast car, a large home, and having a good job may only make you happy if those around you are less well-off. Here's the thing, the pursuit of wealth is leading more people to work longer hours as they seek to pay their mortgages and climb the social ladder. You ever feel that pressure? In fact, Dr. Chris Boyce of the University of Warwick Psychology Department said this, this isn't gonna be new, we all kinda know this, but in the United Kingdom, Britons that are trying to keep up with the Joneses are victims of chronic dissatisfaction. Now obviously, having more doesn't guarantee happiness. We already know that. But have you ever paused, and this is what I'm gonna ask you to do this morning, have you ever paused and considered that having more also makes no sense? It makes no sense. Think about this, in a tragic twist of irony, Even though we know the pursuit of wealth leads to this chronic dissatisfaction, there have been Hollywood produces movies about this. We know this, right? Even though we know that in the end, when we die, we only put one thing in the box, folks. What is that? It's your body, right? We spend much of our limited time on this planet pursuing things we can't take with us when we pass on from this world. Think about it. We go from acquiring diapers, right, to kids' clothes, to toys, to school supplies, to braces, to athletic gear, to cell phones, to computers, to cars, to houses, and on and on and on, this relentless cycle of acquiring more things keeps turning. So in a very real sense, life does boil down to the acquiring of more things, And while keeping up with the Joneses is taking on a whole new meaning with the invention of social media, I mean, one thing still hasn't changed. The absolute insanity of pursuing more. It's like you're a hamster on one of those wheels. you're, You're just going and you're not going anywhere. And it makes no sense, but that's what we do. Materialism, the tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort more important than spiritual values, it has plagued humanity from the very beginning. What did Eve want in the garden? More. Now this materialism, 
it was very much alive in the time of Jesus. And so as a, a very relevant teacher, it is to this very issue that our Lord now addresses in his Sermon on the Mount. And as we're going to see, nobody, and I mean nobody, is immune to this temptation. So let's talk about the chronic, or what I call a chronic temptation. If you would turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. While you are looking there, I'm going to tell you this, that Jesus has been talking about in the verses in chapter 12, previous to this, about uh, hypocrisy and how that will keep you out of his kingdom. And he's sharing the gospel and talking about salvation. And in verses 13 and 14, you have a man in a crowd of tens of thousands of people hearing Jesus' teaching. He yells out all of a sudden, teacher or rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So in other words, this person has no, no interest in anything of spiritual value. He's all focused on the material. And this is Jesus' response. It says, then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And the Bible is full of stories of people who are overtaken by greed. And by the way, he is talking to everybody here in this little parable here. Okay? Whereas I think in the Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing more specifically the Pharisees, because there were a lot in the crowd at that time. He's talking to everybody here. If you go back in the Old Testament, for example, consider Achan. The people of Israel, we all know the story of this fall of Jericho, right? The people of Israel were banned from taking spoils after the destruction of Jericho. But what did Achan do? He disobeyed God and took some of the spoils. And when he was confronted, I want you to just listen to his words found in Joshua 7, verses 20 and 21. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Here it is. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. So the first thing he did is he what? He saw. Second thing is, watch this. Then I coveted. I desired it. I wanted it. Then he took them. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, and look what he does with this stuff. They are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. He buried it in the ground under his tent. That makes sense, right? I'm going to steal something so I can bury it. So instead of inheriting the promised land, Achan died with his whole family because he decided to take what God said don't take. Indeed, the love of money, as we know, is the root of all kinds of evil. Or maybe you remember the story of Solomon, who kept amassing fortune after fortune after fortune until he was the wealthiest man in the world. And was all said and done in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. This is what he says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. Now, of course, vanity means what? It's emptiness. It is uselessness, meaninglessness. It is void. 
And sadly, greed finds its way even into religion. And I'll be honest with you, I am not comfortable talking about money. I don't like talking about money. But I'm committed to teaching the word of God. And he talks about money, our Lord does, an awful lot. But it's found its way even into religion. Uh, do you recall the story of, of the Old Testament of Hophni and Phineas? If you do, God bless you. They were the two worthless sons, and that's what the text says, two worthless sons of Eli the high priest. The sons themselves served as priests. Here it is in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Now these are, are, are think of them as pastors, okay, to point the lens at me, in my profession, or my calling. Here's what it says, starting in verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, they did not know the Lord. Let me stop right there. They didn't know the Lord. Now what does that tell you? Just because I am up here and I can spend a whole, I can spend a whole 40 hours writing a 40 minute message and I'm willing to be up here and I can speak and I can practice this and I can come across and look very good, and, and, and I can craft a very logical and, and, and entertaining sermon, I can be an unbeliever. Do you know why in America there was a surge of unbelievers in the 70s, early 70s, early 80s? There were a number of men that wanted to avoid the Vietnam War and the draft, and so what they do? They went into the ministry. They weren't called. Jesus warns of, of wolves in sheep's clothing. Okay? So when you go to a church, you want to obviously look at the website, for example, and, and they can all have the right things, but you're going to want to know, and you should sense when you're talking and hearing the message if this person is genuine and talk to people before you visit a church. Because you can, just because someone says they're a believer, look at their life, look at the result of their life. These were worthless men. They didn't know the Lord. And that is a, a damning statement. A sobering statement for people like me. It says, In the customs of the priests with the people, that when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh, to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant could come or would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now do you see what's going on here? Let me explain to you. By law, God had determined that a portion of the offering was to go to the priest. Read that in Leviticus chapter 7. They were to live off that, in other words. But Hophni and Phinehas demanded that the offering first first come to them. So they could select whatever they wanted for their own indulgence and whatever was left then went to the Lord. That's why Paul instructs us you know, in the first of the week whenever you, people typically get paid, you set aside that first amount. It's to go to the Lord in terms of giving. It's just a principle. As long as your giving is fine, as long as your heart is right, that's fine. But you know, what they were doing was wrong. The first was to go to the Lord. They said, no, 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 I want it for myself. The Lord gets the leftovers. Now, these people, these two sons, these worthless men, they were religious hypocrites, okay? Their lives were characterized, obviously, by greed. Now, religious greed carries on even into the New Testament. The biggest lovers of money the time of Jesus, were the religious leaders. The Pharisees, who were in the crowd, by the way, the very day that Jesus was preaching 
his famous Sermon on the Mount, were filled with greed. In Luke chapter 16, just listen to this. Jesus is teaching on the same subject at a different time, though. And we have recorded for us the response of the Pharisees to this message about wealth, money, and greed. In Luke 16, 14, we read this. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. They were scoffing at God for God's view of money. Annas and Caiaphas, they were the high priests at the time of Jesus, okay? They ran concession stands in the temple that made them extremely wealthy. At Jesus' triumphal entry, here's their king, their Messiah. He enters into Jerusalem, and it was prophesied. He enters in Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. We have his response to what he finds in Jerusalem and to the greed of the religious leadership. In Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13, we read this. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were sold, all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it what? A den of robbers, exactly. So the question is, well, why this violent outburst by Jesus? Why would God be so angry as to send his son to perform really a, a physical act of passion? Well, because it was a time for the Feast of Passover. This was one of the three Passover or required times for the people to be in Jerusalem. And many Jewish families had made the long and arduous and dangerous trek to Jerusalem. And of course, they carried with them the coins from the countries from which they came, which of course had the imprints of human kings on them. And to the religious leadership in Jerusalem, that was wrong. It was idolatrous. So Rome allowed the religious leadership to print new coins for the feast, which had no imprint of a human on them. In other words, you make no graven image, right? That people would exchange their coins for the new ones so they could buy animals and so on and so forth. But guess what the temple leaders did? They charged an inordinate rate for the exchange. And as well, animals for sacrifices were in great demand. And guess what the religious leadership did? They inflated these prices too. We're seeing inflation now, aren't we? See, this was big business for the religious leadership. They, in essence, had established the first National Bank of Jerusalem. And, they were, and business was booming. Motivated, of course, by nothing more than simple greed. Just like in our time, Religious leaders were using their religious position to get rich. We have seen that over the last 20 years. If you just go, I don't know what, what you have on television, if you have like DirecTV or something like that, go to the 300 level and you'll see all of these religious programs. I would say nine of the 10 preach a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. They have the money to do that. Very few conservative, I call it conservative or evangelicals, have the money to, to be able to put something on the air. Only the big, big, big names. Now, it is sad, but it is a true spiritual principle or spiritual maxim that wherever you have a religious hypocrisy, you inevitably find the problem of Greed. And you all know that have been in the church long enough, you've seen it on TV, you read it on the internet. These pastors who fail or who are extremely wealthy and you find a hypocritical behavior. There's always a connection between religious hypocrisy and greed. Now let's talk about a kingdom view. That's the environment that Jesus entered into. And because of the greed of the Pharisees who were in the crowd listening to him preach, Jesus sets out to correct 
their wrong view of possessions. Now remember, the thrust of the whole Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's chapter five through seven that we've been going over, it seems like forever, but we've been going over it, is basically to replace the inadequate standards created by the hypocritical system of religion of the Pharisees and reaffirm God's divine standards for life in his kingdom outlined in the Old Testament. Okay, you remember that? What Jesus preaching in, in the Sermon on the Mount, it was, was so new to the people, it was simply him reaffirming what was already taught in the Old Testament. Because what they've been taught by the Pharisees and the Sadducees was, wasn't true Judaism. And the key to the whole sermon, in fact, turn there, to go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. If you ever want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, the whole key to that is that verse right there. Chapters 5 through 7 is really summed up in verse 20. Matthew 5, verse 20. It says, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, let me just rephrase that verse in another way. You want to be in my kingdom? You must live up to this standard. You thought you were good with God. Here's how you're good with God. And now he explains his standards by contrasting them to the standards of the Pharisees. So you can look at the sermon this way. To be in my kingdom, you must have, and if you want to write these down, you can, a kingdom view of self. That's the first 12 verses. See, whereas the Pharisees were proud and self-righteous, Jesus says what? You must be broken, humble, and hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not of your own. You have to have a kingdom view of the world. The Pharisees are part of a decaying and dark world. But he says what? You must be salt that retards the decay and light to dispel the darkness. And folks, more and more and more, and the reason why we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount is because, as you can see, our culture has rapidly changed over the last six to seven years. It is increasingly anti-God, anti-conservative, anti-Christian. And the darkness is growing. The light must shine. And God has chosen that he wants his light to shine through his people. So you need to know how to live. Amen? You need, we all need, I need a kingdom view of God's word. See, the Pharisees had developed their own system of religion. Do you remember how many extra laws or commands that they added? It was over 600. And they were full of burdensome rules. But you must know that not one jot or tittle shall pass from that law till it's all fulfilled. You don't add to the word of God. It's good enough, folks. You need a kingdom view of moral issues. See, the Pharisees were only concerned with the externals, i.e. that you don't actually commit the, the, the actual act of murder or adultery or divorce or swearing of an oath or revenge. But Jesus says, that the moral issues are not just what you do or don't do, they're what you think or don't think. You need to have a kingdom view of religious issues. What we just went over. For the Pharisees, remember, they fast, they pray, they give, but it was all hypocritical. You must fast and pray and give, but with the right heart, with the right motive. The bottom line, if you want to be in his kingdom, you must live by his standards. And this, folks, this includes your possessions. So you need a kingdom view of possessions. So I'll turn to Matthew 6 if you're not already there. By the way, we're not going to go into a huge, long breakdown. I just want to give you a general overview for this sermon um, in verses 19 through 24, what we just read this morning, you see that? 
I want you to notice this because it'll help you understand what, what he's saying. Jesus is giving you or explaining a kingdom view towards wealth or luxuries. Okay, the word treasure there, it means uh, it's the, the surplus, it's the extras, it's luxuries, it's, it's wealth. Okay, now go down to verses 25 to 34. You about don't be anxious about what you shall eat, what you shall drink, you know, the clothes you wear, all that, okay? You recognize that? That is a kingdom view towards necessities. You see, so we have wealth or luxuries in verses 19 to 24. Now we have the necessities. In either case, whether it's wealth or the, the extras or necessities, the Pharisees had the wrong view. And if you follow the logic of our Lord's thinking in the sermon, a citizen of his kingdom must have a view of wealth and necessities that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees if you want to be part of his kingdom. And Matthew 6:19 introduces us to the wrong perspective of possessions held by the Pharisees. Look at that. It says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were doing exactly what he says don't do. Laying up for themselves treasures on earth. Well, why? Why were they doing that? Because they were consumed with greed and covetousness. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not how I've designed life to be lived. Kingdom people must have a kingdom view of possessions. And once we have a kingdom view, and only when we have a kingdom view, then we can handle our possessions in a kingdom manner. You got that? So in order to know how to handle our luxuries, our wealth, thankfully our Lord presents us with three sets of two choices in this text. And here they are. Number one, there are two treasuries. You see that? Where's the first treasury? Earth. Where's the second treasury? Heaven. There are two visions. You're full of light or full of darkness. And there are two masters. God or money. And if you look at this text, in each of these alternatives... You have the very same principle, same principle for treasuries, for visions, for masters. It just comes to the reader from a different perspective. And then you have some subordinate reason as to why that principle is to be obeyed. So the principle is given, then the reasons are given in each case. For example, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's the principle. Well, why? What's the reason? Moth and rust destroy and thieves can steal. Okay, That's kind of how he's, he's teaching here. But the point is, what Jesus is saying here really is this, you have to make a choice. You must make a choice. In verses 19 and 20, you must choose whether we lay up our treasure on earth or in heaven. Verses 22 and 23, we must choose whether we're going to exist in light or we're going to exist in darkness. And in verse 24, we must choose whether our master will be God or a master will be money. Folks, it can't be both. It doesn't work that way. So the Lord gives us three choices, which really come together in one choice in regards to how we handle our wealth in verses 19 to 24. Now, on a side note, and again, I, I don't care to preach on, on, on money that much, but how we handle our money, folks, I want you to notice it's very important to God. Why do I say that? Because in the book of Matthew alone, and Matthew, by the way, was a tax collector, the Lord talks about money 109 times. In the book of Mark, he talks about it 57 times. In the book of Luke, he talks about it 94 times. In the book of John, he talks about it 88 times. So when it's all added up, and this is really quite stunning, the Lord talks about money five times more than he talks about any other subject in the Bible. Now, there are obviously, one of the obvious reasons is it's a competition between money and God, but the other reason I believe is that we simply don't listen well. 
He has to keep talking about it over and over and over and over and over again. But there's one more point I want to make before we end this morning in this sermon. Look at verse 19 again of chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, what does he mean by that statement? Is he forbidden a savings account? <clears throat> or a life insurance policy or a wise investment? What if I say you guys were wrong in that? Got silent here pretty quickly, didn't it? You're not wrong in it. So you can breathe a sigh of relief now. But there are some who say that Jesus is forbidding earthly possessions. Okay, they reference Matthew chapter 6, 19. Just listen to this. Okay, in connection with the parable of the rich young ruler. The ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess. Distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, have you ever noticed that this rich young ruler, that's the only person ever recorded in the Bible that Jesus ever said that to? But why did he say that to him? Well, the reason he told the rich young ruler to sell all he has was because all he has stood between him and God. And until he got rid of that idol, there was no connecting with God. And did you notice that he didn't ever say that, for example, to, to Mary and Martha? Remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus, close friends of Jesus? He would go to their house frequently. They were obviously people of means. They supported Jesus' ministry. He never told them, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. In fact, Jesus also said this. This is, you know, in Mark 10, 29 to 30, we, we forget these things, but it's a true of you, pretty much everyone in this room, by the way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. In other words, there's no one that is ever in history of mankind that has chosen to follow me, that has put their surrender of life to me, that put their faith and trust in this death of my son for the forgiveness of their sins, and they are following after me. But that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. So in other words, if you make that decision, you are promised to What? You're going to be blessed a hundredfold, a hundred times as much in the present age. Now watch, what do you get? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. So you get, it's all there. You have shelter. How many people need a place to live? Raise your hand. You do not have any place to live. Okay. How about family? How about a job? Most of it, if you haven't retired, you've had all those things throughout your life, right? You're a follower of Jesus Christ. Has God kept his promise then? Amen, he has. Now watch this, because you're not going to like this, and I don't like this, all right? Along with persecutions. I'll take the houses, the family, the blessed business. I don't want the trial. But it comes along with it. So in other words, by saying that, that, at that point in time in history, they thought that if you were wealthy, you were blessed. And if you were suffering, you were not blessed. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You follow me, I'm gonna bless you, and I'm gonna bless you with even something greater than anything on this earth. You're gonna suffer, you're gonna be persecuted, you're gonna have trials and tribulations. And it, by, that's a blessing because if you endure those, Great is your reward in heaven. So you get blessed in this life, and in the age to come, it says eternal life. 
Blessed in this life, blessed in the next life, eternal life. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8.18, it says this, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you power to make wealth. So if you're making money, you have skills, and you have a desire, and you put it to work, and you're making money, you're creating wealth. Folks, where did that come from? It came from God. And now watch this. This is a sign that he is gonna confirm his covenant, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Proverbs 6 speaks of saving money. And of course, which insect does he refer to? It's the ant. Go to the ant, oh sluggard. Sluggard is a lazy person. We would say it'd be something like someone that's living off of welfare that's using the system to make it relevant for today. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Or how about building wealth? Proverbs 14, 23, I love this. I memorized this verse back in college, I forgot about it, but it makes so much sense, especially as we're trying to come out of the pandemic and we're ending benefits and unemployment benefits and so on. It says, in all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. So in other words, you want to be rich? You want to build wealth? Work. This is why government assistance in welfare, that's not a biblical idea, principle. Because all it's doing, and you can see it as you go up, go up this road, our street, all the way up to Kersey Way, and then turn back down and come back down, and I think they're still there, the signs for the city of Auburn asking you to apply to work. And why aren't people working right now? Jobs are available because the benefits, unemployment are still there. And people, I know some of you own businesses, you can't get people, you can't find people to work. Restaurants are closing down, they can't get people to work. So you wanna make money? You wanna create wealth? Work. You wanna be poor? Talk. In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Now, I don't want to make fun of, of people that are homeless. There are some legitimate people that are homeless, but for the most part, in Washington State, as I've observed the last five years, it's, I know from talking to police officers, there are people that have just don't want to work, people that have had some serious mental issues and they get addicted to drugs and so on, but there's a, a big homeless problem here. I'm going to share it to you because my son Mark works at Discount Tire. They have the homeless that were by the outlet center, they sleep around the Discount Tire area. And one guy was sitting in the, right in the parking lot, right kind of where, they, where they're working, and they can't by law physically remove them. So they ask them to leave. They don't leave. They call the police. The police come. They can't physically remove them. So they, what the police are trained to have? Cigarettes. So offer them a cigarette to move. They then call the fire department. The fire department can't touch them. So outside of Discount Tire are the employees, the police, and the fire department. They called EMS. They could physically grab him and put him on a stretcher, and then he gets a free day and night in the hospital, and there's nothing wrong with him. He's just a homeless person. That is not right. We're paying for that. Okay? I didn't realize it was that bad until he showed me pictures on his phone, the video, of what happened. If they touch them, to physically remove them, just ask them to move it, they lose their job. So you want to be rich? Work. You want to be poor? Talk. Again, folks, there's nothing wrong with building wealth as long as it's done with the right heart attitude. Folks, the wealthy can inherit the kingdom of God as well. The very rich man, Abraham, very, very wealthy in the Old Testament, what was he called? A friend of God. Job was wealthier than he'd ever been before he was so wealthy, before he couldn't even hardly count it. Blessed by God. I guess what I believe the Lord is saying overall just in regards to wealth is this. He has given us the right to possess things. He understands that life is about provision. 
He provides and, and is acquiring things. He's not looking down on ownership. But all he wants is to be sure that our attitude, our heart, is right in the manner in which we possess our wealth that he blesses us with. Let me close with this summary. It's wrong to be greedy. I mean, if I'm going to build bigger barns, i.e., store up treasures on earth to indulge myself rather than store up treasures in heaven, then I have a wrong view of possessions. My heart is not right with God, and the Lord knows this. And how does he know this? He simply looks at how I handle my possessions, because he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. But if I have been blessed by God, and by the way, you want to know where your heart is? Take out your checkbook. Take out your, your calendar, your schedule. What do you fill your life with? That reveals your heart. But if I've been blessed by God with wealth, and now listen, I want to be clear in this, and use it for my enjoyment. He wants you, he gives these things to you to use for your enjoyment, but also to be used for the advancement of his kingdom and his glory. Then, and only then, do we have a kingdom view of possessions. John Wesley was a great man of God. Does everybody know who John Wesley was? Founder of the you know, United Methodist, or the Methodist Church, Methodism, uh, Arminianism, that uh, theology, that, that belief system. He was a great man of God. He labored in prayer, in the study of the word of God, hours and hours and hours each day. But he wasn't out sharing his faith. Now we tend to think of him as a man of, of because he was a, a minister or a pastor as a man of low means. But John Wesley was an extremely wealthy man. He gained his wealth from the hymns that he wrote and the books that he penned. We, we've sung his hymns before in the books that he wrote and penned, okay? And at one period in his life, because he was born, I think, in 1703 and died in 1791, but at one period in his life, he gave away just over 50,000 pounds sterling. Now, that means absolutely nothing to you or me. I had to do the work on this, so what does that mean? Let's put that into perspective. If I convert 50,000 pounds sterling in his time, which I just chose 1750 when he was ministering, to 2020 numbers, it reveals that John Wesley gave away a fortune. The exact number, 11919996 dollars and 61 cents. And there's nobody in this church I know of that has almost $12 million sitting around. And when John Wesley died at the age of 88 in 1791, his estate was worth 28 pounds. So from 50,000 pounds sterling down to 28 pounds. He loved to go to the opera. He would visit the opera. I mean, he had a comfortable life. He enjoyed his life. But he also stored up treasures in heaven while on earth. See, that, folks, is a kingdom view of possessions. And so we have a very, very unique, since I've been here five years, almost five years now, um, application point. You guys know that we have been talking about the original asphalted area uh, is 40, 50 years old. Am I right, Don? It's original, okay? In our efforts to at least maintain it, okay, since I've been here, you know, we took down the trees, and I, I had, Don and Carol spent days when they, they striped it just over two years ago and so on. And, and the outside, with the, you had done work to the inside before I got here. The outside, we have done all this work, in it, and we get compliments from even neighbors about how nice it looks. It's a, it's a better witness to people. So all the crew of Roger and Rodney and Tom and all those people and my sons that do it, that's, God bless them. I approached the board and said, can we seal the asphalt to make it last longer so we can stripe it again? Because when Don and Carol striped it, within really six months, it was already wearing away. And we brought in AA Asphalt 
you know, they, the believers and so on, that some of them attended this church years ago, and they came in and said, you can't do anything to this because there's no adhesion to your parking lot anymore, and there's no structural integrity. And that made sense to us because I've had my boys try and use pressure washer to clean the, the moss off it, and it was just cracking and destroying, shattering the parking lot. It's too old. It needs to be replaced. And Don, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because again, this work has been done by Don. We thought since the pandemic, God has blessed us. We had $130,000 in our savings. You, you knew that. Since the pandemic, when church attendance basically dropped, we went all online and so on, our savings has gone up, ironically, to just under $180,000. So God's blessed us. But to do what we want to do just in this front half, with the rising cost of inflation and everything, to, to re take up some new, pour new concrete, new sidewalks, and kind of do really a proper job for that area there. Just that first half, not going up to the back, just that first half. Uh, to grade it properly, the, when it rains, the water is coming towards the building. We can't open our side door, office door, Debbie knows this, because it's not done properly. And every time we open it, and that's the door that's used the most, it's just destroying that door. So to fix that and to fix some of the, the, the poor new concrete and so on and so forth, and to, to grind all that up and do it, it's 60 grand. Okay? Thus the need for a new capital campaign. And so this week, you'll be getting information from me. And in two weeks from now, because I leave to go visit my dying parents on the... August 3rd the 11th, um, you have an opportunity to do the very thing here. You, you know how to pray, right? We've been over this. Months on how to pray. You know how to fast. Now here's an application point. Pray and ask God as to what he would have you give in regards to this capital campaign. We would like to move pretty quickly on this, but we have a board meeting this Tuesday. We'll kind of make the final decision. Something has to be done. Okay. Ideally, and Don, correct me again if I'm wrong, if we could do it all, I think this back part here would be about 40 grand. Is that about right? I don't know what the numbers down here, I don't know. But anyways, roughly over 100,000 or more to just do all the existing asphalt, which is long overdue. Okay. It was the first time I've come to you for something like this. We did you know, a building project and multiple capital campaigns at the previous church I served in. But we've maintained it nicely in here, and we're doing a better job out here. This is the next step. And so I'm asking you, in a very uncomfortable way, I don't like talking about money, but again, our Lord talks about it, so I'm going to talk about it. Pray about, fast and pray of what you can do, and then you can put it into action in two weeks from this Sunday, on the, not the 18th, but the 25th. You will be able to turn in your pledge card that you'll be getting this week and start to give towards this capital campaign. Now watch this. And all God's people said, Amen. all right, they got behind that one. Very good. I wasn't sure if you would or not. So, so let's uh, stand if you would. We'll close with a song. And if there's anybody that would like prayer, you know, you know, we pray before church from 930 to 1015. If you would like prayer, if there's something that God is speaking to you while we're singing, feel free to come on up. Uh, we can pray for you. Um, and we'll pray for you. And then we'll, we'll end with a song. And you can enjoy this beautiful weather. So let's end with a song. Father, we thank you for this time. Again, may you be glorified in all things and through the end of this service. Amen.